0: Michael Cohen and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. Last week's commemoration of the January 6th attack on the Capitol made clear that the wound inflicted on this nation by Donald Trump and his MAGA brown shirts is still painfully raw. In fact, one could argue that things have gotten worse, much worse. While there isn't armed insurrection in the street. Trump has only strengthened his grip on the Republican Party to the point where he has become a cartoon despot. Everything was going beautifully,
1: and then the election got rigged and stolen from the American people.
2: Anger over a rigged election that got that many people to go to D.C. A tiny percentage, and I mean tiny, like less than 1%, went to the Capitol.
0: We are drowning in lies and venom. Love that day. There was so much love out there during the speech. For most of his first year in office, President Biden has bet that he could move the country past the divisiveness of his predecessor by restoring a sense of normalcy to the White House, practicing the traditional brand of politics he learned over decades in the Senate and as Vice President, and largely ignoring the man he refers to as the former guy. He was fucking wrong. But finally, there was some relief and political payback. President Biden, after a year of ignoring Donald Trump, finally took off the fucking gloves and laid into his defeated opponent and drew blood. In a powerful speech at Statuary Hall last Wednesday, one of the very spots where a pro-Trump mob ran amok a year ago, Biden channeled the feelings of millions of Americans who have had fucking enough
1: of Trump and the GOP's embrace of autocracy. My fellow Americans, in life there's truth and tragically there are lies. Lies conceived and spread for profit and power. We must be absolutely clear about what is true and what is a lie. And here's the truth. The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle, because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest, and because his bruised ego. Matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. He can't accept he lost. He's not just a former president. He's a defeated former president. Defeated by a margin of over seven million of your votes. In a full and free and fair election. There is simply zero proof. Biden's speech overshadowed what may have been the most
0: consequential address of the day from Attorney General Merrick Garland, who in his understated and cerebral manner announced that the DOJ was coming not just for the rioters, but those who planned and financed the attack on the Capitol.
3: The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6th perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. We understand that there are questions about how long the investigation will take and about what exactly we are doing. As long as it takes and whatever it takes for justice to be done, consistent with the facts and the law.
0: This was less than assuring to those who demand swift accountability for the plotters of January 6th. Arizona Representative Ruben Gallego voices the frustration
2: of many who find Garland both weak and ineffective. The problem that we have right now is that we have a very uh, obstructionist Republican Party that should be part of helping us decide how to save democracy instead of trying to cover up for their crimes. And you have, again, an attorney general who is you know, feckless and has not been helpful in terms of preserving our democracy. He said Garland's
0: failure to decisively move forward with a January 6th investigation is posing issues in determining whether and who among former President Donald Trump's associates may have committed crimes through their potential involvement in the insurrection.
2: There's an ongoing slow coup by a bunch of Brooks Brothers dressed politicians. They're going to try to basically change the who counts the, the votes uh, for the elections coming up in 2022 and 2024. Uh, so in some regards, yes, I think we're we're more resilient in case of a physical coup attack. Uh, but at the same time, the uh, ongoing political coup is occurring. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be holding more people accountable. I think Merrick Garland has been extremely weak. Uh, and I think there should be a lot more of the organizers of January 6th Uh, that should be arrested. Gallego certainly isn't the only one feeling
0: the rage. Several other Democrats and even federal judges have criticized Garland's Justice Department for its lax prosecutions of January 6th insurrectionists. No wonder parts of the public in the United States are confused about whether what happened on January 6th at the Capitol was simply a petty offense of trespassing with some disorderliness or shocking criminal conduct that represented a grave threat to our democratic norms, Chief U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell for the District of Columbia said during a court hearing in October. Gallego also warned that the conservative attacks on democracy are evolving.
2: I don't think the attack you're going to see in the future is going to be by a bunch of you know angry fat men trying to uh, get into Congress. I think the actual attack is going to happen uh, in the legislatures, in the county recorder's office, uh, in the board of elections. There's an ongoing slow coup by a bunch of Brooks Brothers dressed politicians. They're going to try to basically change the who counts the, the votes uh, for the elections coming up in 2022 and 2024.
0: But what does the path to prosecution for Donald Trump really look like? Is there truly a possibility that the former president's actions on and before January 6th could lead to a federal indictment? For many, this has become the shiny new object. But what is the political
4: reality? Waiting for Congress to make the referral before opening an investigation into the higher-ups. That's certainly better than, you know, I think the alternative that there isn't going to be an investigation. But it's not so great. I mean, here we are more than a year after now, the attack, and memories fade. And Trump, of course, is good at delay and filing all sorts of bogus lawsuits. And so it's harder to conduct a law enforcement investigation at the Justice
2: Department as time Collapses. I'm worried about our democracy, and I'm worried that you have a lot of people that are trying to treat this. And in part of his speech, he said that he's treating this like they're treating like any other uh, you know, investigation. But this is not any other investigation. This was a coup attempt uh, at our country that involved multiple politicians at very high levels across state lines. And what I'm seeing is something that scares me that they're going to move so slow that either there's going to be a very successful cover-up. Well, we're gonna run out of time.
0: The January 6th House Select Committee appears to be assembling a powerful case that, as President Donald Trump conducted a months-long effort to overturn the 2020 election results and ultimately instigated an assault on the U.S. Capitol to try to block the electoral vote count. Both the Democratic chairman and the Republican vice
4: chair have indicated this could constitute criminal activity. Do they think they have the criminal tools necessary to defend democracy in these instances? It may be that they're looking at this and saying, Without an actual nexus to violence, what the president, the former president and those around him did wasn't actually a crime. It's a threat to the constitution. It's a betrayal of his oath of office. He should've been convicted by the Senate, but it may not be a federal crime under, under the criminal code. And if so, given that this is probably not the last coup we're gonna face, and look, it may not be a crime because our criminal code doesn't have a lot of experience dealing with coups. We luckily haven't faced a lot of them in this country. But if the criminal code isn't sufficient for dealing with it, I would like to hear from the Justice Department that very fact because as long as there's a Democratic Congress, they ought to be looking at changes, maybe not to address what happened in on in, in, uh, January 6th, 2021 in the days leading up to it, but the next time Donald Trump or someone like him is, is on the ballot.
0: The facts might also meet the four corners of the federal anti-sedition statute. Which covers those who would conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States, or to levy war against them, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. Conviction under this statute, however, requires proof that Trump intended the violent mob to achieve what his previous machinations, for example, strong-arming the Georgia Secretary of
4: State, cajoling the Justice Department, did not. Media is now looking at whether Trump personally oversaw a criminal conspiracy that connects a White House plan or the White House plan to stop Joe Biden's certification from taking place on January 6th with the actual violent elements of the insurrection. And this all comes because the committee has a trove of evidence now from people like Meadows and other White House aides that suggest the White House read in uh, Republican members of Congress into Trump's plan to have Pence effectively throw the election or refuse to certify various states for Joe Biden. And so what they are now looking at is if there is any connection between the political elements of that plan and the extremists who stormed the Capitol, because that would amount to a criminal conspiracy.
0: Investigators are looking into whether a range of crimes were committed, including whether there was wire fraud by Republicans who raised millions of dollars by promoting assertions that the 2020 presidential election was stolen, despite knowing the fucking claims were just not true. As investigators scrutinized these fundraising efforts, They are examining whether any campaign finance laws or regulations governing how nonprofits may spend their money were broken. Just a few moments ago,
4: we got a bit of breaking news on the committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. The New York Times reports the committee is weighing the possibility of recommending criminal charges against former President Donald Trump and others in his circle. Quote, according to people briefed on their efforts, investigators for the committee are looking to whether a range of crimes were committed, including two in particular. Whether there was wire fraud by Republicans who raised millions of dollars off assertions the election was stolen despite knowing the claims were not true. And whether Mr. Trump and his allies obstructed Congress by trying to stop the certification of electoral vote.
0: Representative Liz Cheney, vice chairwoman of the committee has suggested that Trump could have violated, through action or inaction, a previously obscure obstruction charge that federal prosecutors have been using to pursue rioters at the Capitol on January 6th, the disruption of Congress's duty to certify the final stage of a
4: presidential election. The was established to create the most authoritative account of what happened on January January 6th. Now, like in many congressional investigations, when they got under the hood and they took a look at what happened and they've looked at these troves of evidence, they've begun to consider whether that in the end they'll have to make a criminal referral. Um, uh, Vice Chairman uh, Cheney really let the cat out of the bag on this last in the past few weeks, where she publicly read from the criminal code and what we did is we went back and did some reporting to sort of look at the extent that the committee is looking at this issue the two biggest issues the ones that you laid out and look a criminal referral uh has no real legal weight but what it would do is it would would possibly change the pressure on attorney general Garland whatever they have whatever they know it was enough for Liz Cheney to go out and say what she did you know in these past few weeks where she read from the criminal code yes um, I think this committee wants to be taken seriously. They wanted this to appear like it's a bipartisan effort that is following the facts. Going out there and reading the criminal code is one of the more aggressive things that a congressional committee that has no criminal powers can do.
0: Jim and Benny G. Thompson appears to be in general agreement. That it appeared to be a coordinated effort on the part of a number of people uh, to undermine the. The election uh, of uh, November, last November. The reason I say that is it could be people in the executive branch, could be people in the Department of Defense, uh, uh, some state characters, uh, some nonprofits, and some very wealthy individuals who wanted to try to finance uh, this undermining of our democracy. And what people saw uh, on January 6th uh, with their own eyes uh was not just uh something
1: created uh at one moment it was clearly what we believe based on the information we've been able to gather uh, a coordinated activity on the part of a lot of people
0: he's describing a conspiracy to overthrow the election to prevent congress from fulfilling its obligations and to block the people's selected choice from assuming the presidency I do worry that what we are placing all our hopes on the January 6th committee to save democracy when, at the end of the day, that all they really are supposed to do is issue a report. We have been to this place time and again. I mean, go back, the Mueller report was a giant fucking nothing burger undermined by Bill Barr and twisted a fucking upside down and backwards and turned upside down by Donald Trump. Impeachment number one shuddered and failed as did impeachment number two. Trump cannot be convicted on the margins of criminality. He is too powerful. The only way is to hang him with the receipts. Proof. Proof and more fucking proof is what's needed. And what did they do? And when did he do it? Those looking for salvation from the committee to deliver that smoking gun may find themselves really bitterly disappointed. And now for the main event. While urgent questions of criminality on January 6th burn in the mind of millions of Americans, the no-nonsense prosecutors in the New York Attorney General's office and the Manhattan District Attorney's office continue to push the ball forward, making a case against Donald Trump and his family members of operating a vast criminal organization for decades. My money is still on Tish James hanging Trump before the DOJ gets their hands on his fat neck. So does my next guest, Tristan Snell. The former New York assistant attorney general famously led the civil prosecution in the Trump University case for the state of New York against the Trump Organization. The 2013 case found the Trump Organization guilty, forcing them to pay out $25 million in restitution. Snell spent years scaling the walls of the Trump Organization, largely creating the playbook for defeating Donald Trump in court. Ultimately, he said, it's about the receipts, not the witnesses. To beat Trump, you need indisputable proof, a smoking gun, and that only comes from having the documents to prove it. Nowadays, Snell is the founder of Main Street Law and appears as a commentator on CNN and serves as a contributing writer for the Washington Post. His work as a lawyer and founder has been featured in a wide array of media outlets from the New Yorker to the Atlantic to last week tonight on John Oliver. He joins me today on Mea Culpa as the nation sits at a precipice of a full-blown constitutional crisis. Whether or not our current attorney general has the fortitude to take down Donald Trump remains very much in question. Snell provided us with a roadmap for what to do next. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Tristan, Roger Stone is taking the 5th today for his deposition before the January 6th committee. Now, Stone has already been sent to the slammer once, only to then be pardoned by our corrupt former idiot-in-chief. What do you believe his culpability to be in the January 6th insurrection?
3: Uh, all reports really indicate that he was really up to his eyeballs in all of this. Uh, he was at the Willard War Rooms at the Willard Hotel right across from the White House uh, in the on the 4th and 5th leading up to January 6th. Uh, there is a now well-known set of uh, photographs and videos of him the night before January 6th. Uh, carousing with members of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, uh, there's a lot there. So it's going to be very interesting to see. It's not surprising that he pled the fifth. I mean, that's a tell right there. It's uh, you know he's he's clearly in it. He's he's right in the middle of this. Otherwise, he wouldn't have pled the fifth.
0: Well, then again, that's a statement yes. that Donald Trump once made, right? Only right. only mobsters that's and guilty right. people plead the fifth,
3: unless. Unless, of course,
0: right. you're a Trump ally.
3: In which case, I guess it's OK. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how all of that transpires. I mean, I think we, we should expect to see a uh, a contempt motion coming from the January 6th committee and then from the full House. So Roger Stone will join the queue of people that are going to be uh, waiting to get uh, uh, processed by the Justice Department and and then by uh, the court system in D.C., unfortunately, the the fact that the courts are so backed up uh, all across the country and and, and certainly in Washington uh, has made that situation a lot more difficult. But uh, you know, clearly there's something there.
0: Right. Except the problem with the backup in the court system is that. It delays again, yeah. and Trump doesn't even have right. to do anything this time. He doesn't have to file yeah. more bullshit, bogus motions in order to delay or to start bringing it now to an appellate court. Or now I want to say, se- he didn't even want to go to the appellate court. He wanted to go straight to the Supreme Court, right? right? Because he knows the, he knows the delay, and in his warped, warped mind, he believes that. He will win in the Supreme Court because he nominated three judges, you know, to the court. So therefore, he thinks he has an advantage. Right. Now, what I found interesting was really Roger Stone's Mm -hmm. comment. I will invoke my Fifth Amendment right not to answer their loaded questions. Right. I mean, this is just so typical of Roger Stone, who's just like a fucking wackadoo. Right. I will invoke my Fifth Amendment right not to answer their loaded questions. Not because I have done anything wrong. Typical Trump move, right? But because I recognize the whole thing as an elaborate trap. And then he goes on to say, I have said time and time again that I had no advanced knowledge of the events that took place at the Capitol on that day. Following to say, I don't like to see the criminalization of constitutionally protected political activity. I think it's a slippery slope. I'm not so sure that there's a constitutionally protected political activity known as an insurrection or a
3: coup. Right. What am I missing here? Right. No, I don't think you're missing anything. You know, at the end of the, look, that is going to be their defense. Their defense is going to be to try to wrap themselves in the cloak of the First Amendment and hope that it somehow provides some kind of immunity for them. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of first amendment. This is a very well-developed area of law uh, in terms of inciting action, carrying out action, planning action, and where is the line between speech and action? Where is the line between a peaceful assembly and a, and a riot or an insurrection? Uh, I think that if you take a holistic view of this entire thing, it, it, it becomes pretty unmistakable that this was all very much planned uh, and that this was something that they, they knew full well that what they were doing was uh, baseless, meritless, that they weren't actually trying to achieve a valid political outcome based on an argument that could go either way. That this was a situation, that, that, that this was not just political activity. This was beyond that. They had no basis for any of their positions of uh, voter uh, voter fraud or election fraud Uh, and that thereby what they were doing was trying to throw a monkey wrench into the constitutional process to elect and then uh, inaugurate the next president of the United States based on a democratically held election. Uh, And the intent piece of that is going to be the key, because that'll also sort of help suss out uh, whether or not these guys can actually get convicted. I think the key there is going to be uh, the fact that one thing we do know is that there was that November 16th memo that was done by the Trump campaign to look into the Dominion claims and a whole bunch of the other claims of election fraud, finding them all to be false and baseless, uh, that there was no merit in them. Uh, and that was distributed to you know a wide group of people. We don't know exactly whom yet. That's one of the things that I think we need to figure out is what communications were made within the, it really looks like a conspiracy. Uh, within that conspiracy, who was apprised of the fact that there were no, uh, there was no merit to any of these claims of election fraud? Because that that creates intent. It wasn't just oh, we thought it was election fraud, and then we were trying to exercise our constitutionally protected rights. No, 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 no. You knew that these things were baseless back in mid-November, and yet you kept on pursuing this. And I think one of the other big keys to this is with Roger Stone in particular is if it looks really like for all the world, like he could have been one of the people who was a liaison to the guys that were really there to actually act violently and to act in disregard of the law that day. Uh, Some of these paramilitary groups, Uh, we need to find out exactly what his connections were with those people, what his communications were with those people. Uh, You know, it really, it certainly gives off the appearance that he was, one of the links to the Proud Boys, to the Oath oath Keepers, to all of those guys. And they weren't the only ones who came there that day with an intent to do harm and to be violent, but they were certainly among the ringleaders of that effort. Uh, And we need to know how Stone was connected with all of that.
0: Well, I think that information has now been provided to the January 6th committee. Uh, What we saw over the last couple of days were two young um, individuals, yes. a male and a female, Dustin Stockton, as well as a young lady by the name of Je- uh, uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Yep. Uh, not the actress, Jennifer the Lawrence. Actress. And what they, right, what they, <laughs> what next thing we know, we're going to get, we're going to get, uh, you know, lawsuits against us. You know, your whole, <laughs> it's, it's a Jennifer defamation Lawrence. claim now. <laughs> not that Jennifer Lawrence. What What's interesting is that the two of them, Stockton and Lawrence, obtained... From and this was you know protected um, rally mm-hmm. for the Save America rally, right? Which was then promoted as a Save America march, but their permit never permitted them to march. It was merely a rally in the in an area uh, which is known as the Ellipse yeah. that's um, in the National Mall, which is you know just south of um, the White House. Somewhere around two weeks prior to the January 6th rally that was scheduled, the two of them were contacted by Trump campaign officials, including Eric Trump and Laura Trump, and they hijacked the rally. They said, we're going to take it from here. I find that to be interesting. Now, what these two individuals have now done is they provided to the January 6th committee a whole slew of emails, text messages, etc. What they've also ended up discussing with the January 6th committee are things like um, Mark Meadows being in communication with this Mother-Daughter Act that actually took over. Uh, I forget what the last name of these folks are, Uh, but it was a mother-daughter team that basically ended up taking over with Eric and Laura Trump, mm-hmm. the this rally. Yeah. And I say this because I think it's extremely significant. And I say it's significant because what they ultimately turned over were conversations that allude to the fact that This mother-daughter team had burner phones, but real burner phones, not the bullshit kind of burner phones that they put, like, in my allegation when they came in. They took, uh, according to them, 14 burner phones. They weren't burner phones. They were my kids' old cell phones. Mm -hmm. I have two children, my wife's old one, including my old phones, which also included a Palm Pilot. I don't even know if you were born for a Palm Pilot. Oh, thing. I definitely was. Right? That's the, I'm not, I'm that's the one where you, <laughs> you have to put the antenna up and it's it's well, not well, powered by... by I used to Yeah.
3: Mm.
0: But, and as soon as, as soon as you log on to it and you upload it, the battery runs out, so yeah. you, you never really have a chance to use it. It was a complete nightmare. But my point is, we now know that there were communications going on between the outside, the insurrectionists, yeah. and Mark Meadows... Yes. And there's no doubt in my mind that Roger Stone is also named in many of these documents because that's who Roger is. Roger is somebody that likes to stir up the shit. And any time that there's something that he can do which is dirty or treacherous, that's Roger Stone. Mm-hmm. And to do it for Donald, right, his Fuhrer, um, his supreme leader, he's all in.
3: Right. Yeah, I mean, I think the kicker there is, you know, as you were saying that, one of the things that kind of springs to mind for me is the narrative that may emerge is that there may have been somewhere in the, in the middle of this thing, uh, this thing being January 6th, somewhere, somewhere down in the middle of this thing, if you dig deep enough, there may have been a peaceful, uh, you know, political rally uh, that was going to happen in there. That may have been the intent of a number of these participants. However, uh, if that rally was happening, here's what I'm thinking, is that it may have actually been, from the Trump perspective, a really great cover for what they actually wanted to do. In other words, they figured, great, there's already going to be a crowd of people there. Uh, most of them are, you know, they're just coming to to yell and scream and, and applaud Uh, they're not there to do anything else but we'll be able to then say that the entire day was peaceful democratic political activity as opposed to uh I, i guess what i'm trying to say is that they effectively hijacked and then infiltrated that event and then made sure that a bunch of the people that were there were actually not intending to be peaceful they were intending to be violent and they were intending to go storm the capitol uh, and that they were able to basically say it was a great cover. It was basically a ruse uh, or almost like a Trojan horse to go up to the to go up to the capitol with a bunch of peaceful people in the mix to make it look like it was a peaceful event and to be able to say it was a peaceful event after. but they had then sort of sown the seeds of having making sure that there were all these guys there that were ready with weapons that were ready with uh, that were that were wearing Kevlar vests, uh, that were that were uh, that had uh, batons, that had uh, you know hammers. They were ready to break glass. They were ready to attack people. Uh, they had bear spray. You know, we still, by the way, always have to thank God that these people did not decide to just arm up. Um, that we because it would have been a it would have been a, it would have been an absolute mess if these people had actually brought the guns that they probably have at home. Uh, January six would have been a very very different and much more horrible uh day but they were violent enough as it was but i really hearing you say this it's like look i think that there may have been people who truly meant to just have a political rally that day and nothing more uh and i think that they got hijacked and they got infiltrated and based on what we already have seen with stone having connections to these paramilitary groups i think that he should be uh, definitely high on the list of, of of people of interest uh, that the committee and then law enforcement folks need to be talking to. Uh, and, and we're also, I think we need to dig deeper as to what the connections were with those folks and people inside the Capitol, uh, including members of Congress, uh, because we still have all of the other things, which I'm, I'm guessing you might be getting to, with, uh, you know, why were, uh, why were uh, Mike Pence and his team's um uh, uh you know uh cards security cards turned off he couldn't get around the capitol that day uh why was uh ayanna presley's uh panic button removed from her office that day uh you know people were then tweeting out the location of exactly where the speaker was including lower Boebert, on that day tweeting out exactly where speaker pelosi was uh How did the how did the how did the insurrectionists get to the Capitol and instantly go to the I think it's something in the neighborhood of six to 12 or something like that? There are only a handful of windows in that entire building, the Capitol, that were not reinforced. And the insurrectionists knew exactly which ones they were. Uh, Who placed the pipe bombs on January 5th? We still don't have an answer to that. There are a lot of other moving pieces to this. Uh, that we need to get answers to. Roger Stone probably has some answers. Uh, and then there's a lot of other people that they need to go after. And the big picture here is that we're getting to a point now where I think all of these investigations are going to start jumping from the folks you're talking about, Stockton and Lawrence, the people who actually were there on the ground. And now we're we're jumping from the troops up to the suits. And the troops, a lot of why they've decided to cooperate, Stockton and Lawrence in particular, is because they feel betrayed. They feel like that the people that were there on the ground are now the ones getting punished and that the ringleaders are not getting any uh, punishment. They're not actually facing any accountability. And that is a strong motivating factor for folks like them to say, no, I'm actually going to go cooperate with law enforcement. Uh, These are people that are not pro-government. I'm sure they are not happy to be talking to a Democratic majority committee. They're probably not happy to talk to Law enforcement under a Democratic president—if they end up getting uh, interviewed by DOJ at some point, which I'm sure they will if they haven't been already—but uh, they are—they feel betrayed. They feel betrayed. Yeah.
0: Except, interestingly, so stage.
3: Okay. we're getting to an advanced stage now of where this is going. It's starting to get a lot more advanced.
0: Yes, it is, and I just wanted to touch on that for a second because. You're not going to get people like John Eastman who also pled the 5th. You're not going to get Roger Stone. You're not going to get Steve Bannon to utter a single word. No matter what the penalty is that's going to they're going to stick, you know, right next to Donald thinking that he's going to save them. They're willing to for whatever reason, you know, throw away their their legacies, throw away their honor, throw mm. away whatever position like I ended up doing losing my law license, my business, my family's happiness, etc. You don't need their testimony, is something that I talk so right. often about here on Mea Culpa. The documents speak for themselves. Yes. And the interesting thing to me, right, is that they now have a treasure trove of these documents that implicate Meadows from Don Trump Jr. Right? You have Mark right. Meadows' book. That's his own words. He, you, it's everything about Meadows, who I can't help myself, but I have to continue with it. He is the dumbest asshole on the planet. Right, He's the dumbest asshole on the hill. You don't put out a book of your thoughts, your, your information, no. and then go and try to plead the fifth. And then we have, of course, again, Eastman and, and Bannon, and then you have Stone. You're not going to get a word uttered about this January 6th insurrection, not because, as Roger Stone said, because I'm innocent and this is a sham, this is a witch hunt. This is fact. But we now have the documents, the documentary evidence in order to at least indict them. And let's make it rough for them and see how strong, you know, their, you know, their, their internal fortitude Right is let's really put them to the test because you know what bothers me the most, and and I I want to get your opinion on this. What really bothered me the mm-hmm. most is after reading all about the text messages going back and forth, you know, to Meadows, whether from Don Jr. and everything that came out from Meadows' own um, providing of the documents to the January Sixth Committee. I compare this, which is. A coup attempt, an insurrection on our capital, and then compare it to somebody like Reality Winner, who got what, right. six years or something like that, for one page that you know she put out there because, as a whistleblower, she was concerned with the Russian collusion, um, you know, conversation that was going on, and decided that she could not sit back. And watch them lie about this she gets six years for treason well what the fuck is an insurrection then is that not treason against our constitution what am i missing
3: yeah look the thing is that uh you know even if it isn't technically meeting the definition of treason uh because there isn't an external enemy although let's just put aside russia for a second we'll just put that away uh we we still we don't know where this could tie into foreign powers even if there isn't a foreign power in play it's sedition and that is a crime and con- and conspiracy to commit sedition is a crime sedition is the o- is the overthrow of the united states it's just a fancy word for a coup or some other interference in the functioning of the government and and then there's a lot of other federal statutes on the books about uh having uh, about basically Effectively interfering with the, with, the, with an election, interfering with a uh, proper governmental procedure, interfering with the proper, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of them that I can't remember off the top of my head, but the, the people have been talking about for a while. And then conspiracy to commit any of those things. So there are federal statutes on the books that are implicated here for sure. So, you know, I think that part is, is there. Uh, you know, you bring up indicting, uh, obviously, this gets into one of the favorite uh, parlor games that everybody has been playing, which is, you know, is DOJ actually doing stuff behind the scenes and we don't know about it? Or is DOJ doing nothing yet? Uh, and you know, the, the surest way to get a bunch of anti-Trump people to start yelling at one another online uh, is to take a strong position about how you feel about Eric Garland. right? Uh, you know i have i have come to the conclusion that um you know there's a couple of things one is that i agree with your assessment that the documents are, are are critical here and we the thing is look we're about you know 10 to 15 years into texting being kind of a ubiquitous activity that everybody engages in pretty much all the time people text more than they call they text more than they email things that used to be emails are now done as text even for business purposes uh, the sheer quantity of text messages that people send is enormous. And all of that stuff is evidence and you don't need the person's phone. All of that stuff is, is sitting there on cloud servers with Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile. So you can go get it. Now, if they used something that's encrypted on both ends, like WhatsApp or signal, uh, or telegram, and it's, uh, we know that Mark Meadows was using signal, uh, to some degree, even on January 6th itself. Uh, then you potentially do need to get the person's device, uh, but you don't need their testimony. And there's no such thing as a Fifth Amendment right to not hand over a device. It doesn't exist. The Fifth Amendment is for testimony. It does not say that you are that you can uh, that you have a right not to incriminate yourself by what's on your phone. You got to hand over the phone. You got to hand over the computer. So the, the being able to get these materials from these people is that that's that's a critical point. And then you bring up indicting. I think that gets into like, okay, where's DOJ in all of this? Uh, I have come around to the idea that I think that DOJ is probably doing something way more than we think. It's probably way more than we think, but probably a little bit less than we hope. Uh, I think it's somewhere in between. Uh, I do think that that things on their end are probably at a very advanced stage, and that they are just doing an excellent job of keeping it under wraps. So somebody like Adam Schiff can can go on go in front of the cameras and say that he doesn't believe Merrick Garland is doing anything. If I were Merrick Garland, I wouldn't tell Adam Schiff anything. I realize he's a you know senior member of the House uh, and that you know he's on all these committees. But I wouldn't tell him anything because you'd be jeopardizing the integrity of your investigation. You don't tell anybody anything. And I, I've come around to the notion that um, here's one thing that's interesting: Merrick Garland. You know, people have criticized him a whole lot, but what people don't necessarily know, and it doesn't get reported nearly enough, he was the guy who took down Timothy McVeigh. He prosecuted the Oklahoma City bombing. He he was one of the people who prosecuted the Olympics bombing in Atlanta. Uh, these were a long time ago now, but for anybody who remembers those things, those were two. Those were the two biggest domestic terrorism acts of the 90s, and two of the biggest ones ever for domestic terrorism uh, of certainly of recent times. And Merrick Garland prosecuted both of them, and he has a reputation for being someone who's very meticulous, very methodical. And you and he has managed to like cut you, and you didn't even know it. He, he's not a flashy guy. He's not going to get in front of the cameras and grandstand. He's not Rudy Giuliani. You know, Giuliani's style as a prosecutor was very out front, very in the papers all the time, always in front of the cameras, made people do camera perp walks. He he practically invented those. Uh, You know, Merrick Garland's like the exact opposite. So I have come around to feel that there's a lot more going on at DOJ than anybody realizes. And that if if members of Congress or members of the media or commentators believe that, that Garland is not doing anything, that's exactly how Garland's trying to play it. I think he's fooling everybody. I think they're doing way, way more than we realize. Uh, and they might not even be telling the guys on the Hill what they're doing. They're not telling members of Congress. It may be that none of them know what's going on. Nancy Pelosi may have no clue what's going on with the Department of Justice right now. Um, well, let's hope,
0: let's hope that you're, let's hope that you're right on that. We'll have to see.
3: So I, what you bring up indictments, you know, I think that, look, are they going to happen tomorrow? No. Are they going to happen in the next three months? No. Could we start seeing some serious indictments of ringleaders of January 6th sometime in, uh, sometime in 2022? Yes. I do believe that we're going to see that these things move slower than we like, but I think they're moving faster than we realize.
0: So let me ask you this then. It appears now that Part of the January 6th committee strategy is to use the massive volume of information it is gathered to feed the media a steady stream of stories and control the narrative of actually what happened and frame the story. I'm curious as you're watching things unfold, including the subpoenaing today of Phil Waldron, the creator of that 38 page coup PowerPoint. What, what's the larger, na- you know? what's the larger narrative that they're walking towards? Because I believe that the ultimate goal is to walk Trump into a criminal prosecution. What's your thoughts here?
3: I think you're right. I think that they are, I think it's, as it's beginning to snowball, it's beginning to build up steam. You know, people criticize criticized them for having all of the hearings behind closed doors, but that's typical for this kind of thing. You're not going to hold the first hearings uh, in public. You're going to hold them behind closed doors uh, these are depositions they're not normally public at first uh they're other sworn they're on the record uh, and they want to get all the facts first they've already been hinting that there are going to be public hearings in the coming in the coming year in the new year and i think that that's when we'll really start to see some of this we got a taste of it the other night when they had the uh first they had a, a couple nights ago uh two different nights we had the committee session and then we had the full house session on the mark meadows contempt action and we started to see especially from liz cheney was really the 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 most visible person doing this now we've started to see we now we found out some about some uh, about some of mark meadows's texts that's just the beginning we're going to start actually we're going to start seeing more and more public proceedings from the committee where they will in fact they're going to be doing this to try to 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 start to tell the story is to the house's job here is going to be more about uh it's about evidence gathering and then it's going to be about beginning to craft the narrative for the public more than anything uh and then queuing it up for things that can then be referred over to to doj not just for contempt but for indictments on these much more serious federal charges around conspiracy and sedition uh you know other people that we can think of here that are going to be key here are jeffrey clark jeffrey clark also pleading the fifth uh at least for now we'll have to see what he ends up doing he's up to his eyeballs in this and it's very well documented and two of his two of his colleagues already basically testified against it including his boss jeffrey rosen so it's going to be very very hard for clark to escape anything there's a whole bunch of different wings of this and a bunch of things that we're going to see um and yeah i agree with you i think that we're going to see a lot more that will that will start to drive the media narrative more uh and i think it's already changed a lot just within the last week in terms of the media has been reporting on this a lot more than they had been um and i think it's going to start to pick up steam more that is also what happened during watergate it took a long time to actually get to a point where you really started to see it take over the news. People think about watergate now and think oh well they must have caught him pretty quickly and you know oh and then he resigned no 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 no. it took more than two years to get nixon to resign uh and it was a full year almost about 330 days before you actually had any public hearings on the matter and the next day they actually appointed a special prosecutor Now, there is something that hasn't been done at the DOJ level that a lot of people have been clamoring for, and it may end up happening. They may end up appointing a special prosecutor at some point. Obviously, that would be a very significant development. I would not be surprised if we see that in the next three, four months that we'll actually see a special prosecutor. Uh, It'll give potentially another layer of uh, insulation of the process, because above all, they're going to want to make sure that this doesn't look political. They want to make sure that this is a this is a law enforcement matter. This is not a political matter. This is a law enforcement matter, and they're going to do everything they can to make sure that it is treated the same way, and that they are taking down a conspiracy the same way that they did with regard to some of these other domestic terror attacks in the past, and the same way that they have for uh, for mafia cases, uh, and the same way that they have for other uh, types of conspiracy cases.
0: So, Tristan. I'm hoping that you could unpack something that I found a rather interesting tweet that you wrote on January 14th. And I'm going to quote. I'm, pretty, I'm sure you know exactly the interesting tweet that I'm referring to. And I'm going to quote it now. The deeper game here, if the January 6th investigation goes truly nuclear... Mitch McConnell may in fact stand down as the Senate votes to ban from office the House representatives who participated in the insurrection under the 14th Amendment. Mitch won't go down with the GOP ship. If you do me the favor, explain to my listeners what you meant here and if this is why he's been praising the work of the committee in the recent days.
3: Yeah, that's what prompted my tweet there. Yeah, this was the other day, December 14th. Um, I do believe that it's possible that, uh, look, Mitch McConnell is a is a wily old fox. Uh, He is uh, he is he is definitely a survivor. Uh, You know, he used to actually be much more of a moderate Republican back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, He was not anywhere near this conservative. Uh, if you go back and sort of go read the wikipedia entry on mitch mcconnell it's fascinating but he has shifted as the gop has shifted but here's the thing is that go back rewind to january 6th uh, january 7th when they actually then were certifying the uh the electoral college results you know you obviously had a very large number a shockingly large number of the gop reps in the house voted to not certify the election results uh, whereas in the Senate it was way way fewer, uh, McConnell held a block of more moderate, uh, more in, more than maybe establishment GOP folks uh, to actually vote to certify the results. Uh, I don't believe that McConnell is going to let the let the Senate GOP block or, or caucus get dragged into the mud the way that the the way that is happening on the House side, where it's clear you had a significant amount of participation in the events of January 6th in one form or another. We don't know quite yet if it was truly criminal, but certainly some involvement, I'll just put it for now, by quite a few uh, representatives of, of the House on the GOP side. Uh, now, th- where, where is this going? We have the possibility of some of these people getting uh, criminally prosecuted, uh, I believe that if that does occur and you actually start to see indictments and then convictions or guilty pleas from some of these members of Congress who participated, truly participated and, and criminally participated in January 6th, um, I'll give an example. Uh, you know, If they were uh, giving out information about the whereabouts of certain members of Congress that were being targeted that day, uh if they were uh involved with uh any other security breaches or giving away uh you know the location of the non-reinforced windows giving tours to the insurrectionists so that they were able to case the building uh on the on january 4th and january 5th uh once all of these things can get criminally proven would you then start to see activation of the disqualification clause, which is in section three of the 14th amendment, uh, which was passed after the civil war, uh, to say that anybody who has sworn an oath to defend the constitution, by the way, that is, uh, that's, that's all members of the house, senate, a lot of high ranking executive office officials and includes judges, it includes all members of the military. It's that famous oath that has the line in it, you know, uh, against all enemies, uh, that they'll defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That is critical here. They swore an oath to defend the Constitution against domestic enemies. Uh, If they swore that oath of office and then participated in or gave aid or comfort to an insurrection, they can be. Banned from all office, federal, state of any kind, uh, by a majority of both houses of Congress, by a simple majority. Uh, There is some potential legal interpretation in there that we don't need to get into right now. They then, that then, that ban can get lifted by a two-thirds majority of both houses. Uh, But this disqualification clause is something that we all need to keep an eye on because it's one thing to say oh some of these people are going to be going through the criminal justice system potentially it's another thing entirely to then say that they could actually be banned from office for life uh, because astoundingly it is possible that some of these people could actually get reelected even if they're criminally prosecuted uh, but if the but if there's a majority in the two houses of Congress to ban them from office under the disqualification clause, then they're out and they're not gonna be able to run for Congress again. They can't go run for state legislature in their home states. They can't go run for governor. They can't go run for president. They can't go run for anything. They're out for good, um, unless they get a two thirds majority to let them back into uh, being eligible for office again. And I think the, the big question there is, especially with, this, with the persistence of the filibuster, is, is Mitch McConnell, going to allow that to happen. There's a there's a Democratic House majority right now. Question whether it'll still be there by January 2023, but right now it's there. So if if you actually had one of these Republican House reps who participated in the insurrection, uh, would they get a majority of Democrats in the House to say that they should be banned from office? Yes, I think you get it. Um, But then the question is, would the the Republicans even allow that vote to happen or would they filibuster it? And uh, and I think that there. So my tweet was basically to say, Mitch McConnell, may be like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna save these guys. I'm not gonna stick my neck out to to save somebody like a Lauren Boebert or a Marjorie Taylor Green or a Paul Gosar uh, that may have participated in this. Uh, if they, if it turns out that they are criminally prosecuted and they're uh, potentially being banned from office, Mitch McConnell would, I think. Uh, potentially let that go to a vote. He would uh, he would make sure that enough Republicans uh, voted for cloture, that there would be no filibuster. And I think Mitch McConnell would personally uh, be potentially willing to vote to ban some of those people from office if it turns out that they're criminally liable. I do, because I think that McConnell cares more about his institutional position more than anything else and if he if they really see that some of these people truly did participate in the insurrection, I think he is going to stand stand aside, or, or you know he could do the he could do sort of a halfway measure where he lets the vote happen, but then he votes not to ban them, which is what he did with the uh, impeachment. He allowed the second impeachment to go forward last winter, but then he didn't end up voting uh, in favor of impeaching Donald Trump and or convicting Donald Trump. Uh, but I actually think that Mitch McConnell could. Could, could actually let these people twist in the wind rather than using the Senate to defend them.
0: So let's go back because we were talking before also about the phone records that you don't have a Fifth Amendment right to your phone records, your computer records, emails, text messages, etc. It's almost one year now since the insurrection, and there has not yet been a subpoena for Kevin McCarthy's phone records. The same holds true with Josh Hawley as well as Lindsey Graham. First off, what relevant information do you think that they have to provide? I think it's got to be a shit ton, right? And why do you think that it hasn't happened yet? I mean, this is the part that I think frustrates America, at least Democrats. It's frustrating the fact that it's a year. In a year... We expect our representatives, those that are sitting on these committees, to at least act expeditiously. It does not take a year to get Lindsey Graham, Josh Hawley, Kevin McCarthy's phone records. Fuck, they got mine in like a day. So I know that it's possible to do it.
3: Why not? Why haven't they done it yet? It's politics. You know, the difference between your situation and this situation is that uh is that they weren't they weren't worried about political repercussions and going after you, right? Uh the the, the fact that these that the this situation is so fraught politically, I think is the reason why we haven't seen those happen yet. I tweeted about this the other day too. I actually believe that the reason why they haven't gone after those guys yet is because it's 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 a heavier lift politically is the way I put it. Uh I I believe that so let's just be clear. I believe that they probably already have a lot of records on those three folks uh on McCarthy on holly uh and Graham uh from the phone companies. I think they already have plenty of data from on those three guys from the phone companies. Uh they haven't subpoenaed those three people individually yet. I think that we I think they're gonna work up to that point. I think what you're gonna okay. see probably is they're gonna, they're gonna get some really good text messages from those guys to one of the people who have already been implicated. And then they're going to be ready to share those text messages publicly so that they basically build a public case for this is why we're actually going to be going after the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy. This is why we're still gonna start going after members of the Senate. Um, and I, I think that we're getting there that's that's my take i and it and again it, the same answer for why it's taken so long it's politics that's the reason why it, it took it took them it's frustrating don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not apologizing for them i'm just I, i'm just pointing out that i believe that that's why it's been taking so long it took them six seven months just to get the damn committee you know just to actually appoint a committee um they were and i think part of the reason why there's some of it was the was the sort of like politically sensitive nature of then the fact that they're going after the recently left the recently uh you know left republican president and the fact that they're going after members of congress who were implicated in all of this uh that's uh, that's part of why it's politically fraught and then i think the other reason that's political is because they didn't want that to be the first thing that happened in Biden's new term. I think that's also why we didn't see any action on it in the first six months of the year, because they wanted to have Biden's, they wanted to get Biden's legislative program built and into Congress. Uh, and, And I think that the administration was also up to its eyeballs dealing with COVID. Uh, okay so allow me
0: allow me then to yeah. expand on that question yep. for you. Yeah. Cuz the larger question is now that they are going after the phone records yes. of the sedition 7 that's Boebert, Biggs Quathern my my all-time favorite Matt fucking Gates right Gohmert, another idiot and a half Paul Gosar Jerkoff right Marjorie Taylor Green there's nothing else anybody can say about that piece of shit each um Perry do you think that this is where we truly find out what actually went on on January 6th and who was involved all the way up and then all the way down?
3: Yeah, I think we're going to look. And again, remember, I believe that they actually already have a lot of those records from the phone companies. And I think they have social media records from Facebook and from Google and from a lot of these other... uh, Because remember, they did those subpoenas earlier on. They subpoenaed the third parties first. They went after all those custodians of records back in August and September, I wanna say. Uh, So they are, and and a lot, most of those companies said that they were gonna cooperate. So I think they already have their hands on a bunch of these records on a bunch of these members of Congress. Um, I think that the reason why they're going after them individually is because probably some of the third party tech companies didn't necessarily give everything right away. Uh, Also because they wanna see if there's anything that was missed. And then also because I believe that some of these communications were done on encrypted forms of of communication where there's end-to-end encryption. Uh, You know, if you've got end-to-end encryption, then arguably, God only knows, put it this way, for one thing, just because a platform says it's end-to-end encrypted doesn't mean it is. One. Two, if it truly is end-to-end encrypted, then what that means is that the platform Uh, say Signal, arguably has no way to produce the texts that somebody like Mark Meadows sent on Signal on January 6th, thereby you actually have to get those texts from one of the two people who sent them texts, right? Okay, but Tristan, but Tristan,
0: yes. Yeah. Yes, but Tristan, let's just use Mark Meadows since you brought that out as the example here. Yeah. There are statements made between Don Jr. and Mark Meadows, between Mark Meadows and other of these insurrectionists, the rally organizers, et cetera. You don't need 50 different aspects of this case in order to indict this fucking asshole. All you need to do is take one. Take two if you really want to waste your time. I think that the fact that they're intending on subpoenaing 300 people, or they already have, that they intend on you know, speaking now to hundreds of witnesses. For what? You don't. I say this all the time on Maya Culpe, and it gives me agita. You don't need to kill 100 people to be a murderer. All you need is to get them on one. There's more than enough here to show. Just between Don Jr., and Meadows that Trump knew about it, that Meadows knew what was going. And that should be more than enough to create an indictment. Now, if you want to find some other stuff, sure, the stuff that's encrypted right, um, on both sides, okay, you're not going to get it. But I guarantee you that they already have at least a dozen, a half a dozen, just ironclad information that would be more than enough to bring to a grand jury and to indict. Because we already know that grand juries, it's a one-sided event. It's not as if the other side is there defending themselves. Fuck it, bring the indictment, then bring them in. And and put the pressure already onto it. But I want to ask you something, because it goes back to this whole thing about indictments and legal fees. It was recently revealed that the RNC agreed to pay $1.6 million worth of Trump's legal bills. Now, you know I have an issue with with all of this, but I'm curious what that arrangement says to you. First off, why would they need to pay the bills if he's a billionaire? And secondly, are they that tied to Trump that they need to bail him out of legal trouble? Because I saw Ronna Romney McDaniels, who's, look, I've spent time with her when I was the uh, RNC vice chair of the finance committee. she's a total supporter. I mean, she in her mind Donald Trump walks on water. Right. I mean, what is this really what is this really saying to you that the RNC which is supposed to be for all republicans, right? Throughout mm-hmm. the the entire country is using this money instead they're dumping 1.6 million dollars into defending an insurrection.
3: I mean, for one thing, if I were a Republican donor, I'm not. But if I were a Republican donor, I would and and wasn't super fond of Trump. Uh, and even if I were fairly supportive of him, I would be pissed because let's just be clear. Let's unpack it just a little bit more. This is this is this has nothing to do with even with January 6th. This is nothing to do with, you know, look, Trump is going to get investigated uh, I think, ultimately indicted for his role just merely with the wing of the uh, of the January 6th conspiracy revolving around DOJ. His efforts to try to to get Jeffrey Clark to basically weaponize DOJ, uh, I think, uh, and and get them to falsely declare that there had been election fraud. I think that that's probably going to result in something criminal for Trump. But that we're not even about that. This is about his private business uh, his private business cases where he's uh, facing both criminal and civil investigations here in New York, from the Manhattan DA's office and from the uh, New York Attorney General's office regarding uh, possible tax and lender fraud uh, here uh, with regard to the Trump organization. Those are the legal bills that we're talking about that 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 now the the RNC has paid 1.6 million dollars of. Um, that is unprecedented nobody has been able to point to any situation in which this has happened before one of the two major political parties has actually paid uh a anybody's personal you know business legal bills uh, criminal defense legal bills uh you know yeah it definitely it you know that was one of the you know points i made on twitter really quickly was that you know if, if you're a real billionaire you don't need a handout to pay your legal bills You don't need somebody, you know, giving you $1.6 million to cover your legal bills if you're supposedly a billionaire. So it kind of puts the lie to the notion that, you know, Trump is this very successful uh, business guy, uh, especially these days. Uh, But then there's also the fact that, yeah, to answer your other question, the RNC is that enthrall to Trump. There's just no way around it. He is their meal ticket right now. Um, He is the main reason that they're able to raise money. Uh, If there is a divorce between Trump and the RNC, uh, you know, that would the RNC would cease to be able to raise most of the money that it can raise. Uh, And apparently it was buried in some of the news reports from this yesterday. But there was a little note that jumped out at me, which is that Ronald McDaniel has had to plead with the president not to form a third party. So I think that the Republicans, the RNC is uh, the better way to put it is they're scared of what will happen if Trump turns on them. I think they're very scared that Trump is just going to wake up one day and write one of his little you know, email statements uh, and declare that he's starting his own political party and that he's, uh, or that he's going to run for president as an independent and that he's going to leave the Republican Party. I think that is their nightmare scenario. Uh, because they know that it would completely doom them to complete irrelevance. If Trump were to leave the GOP right now, it actually could mean the end of the GOP. It might be dead. Like it, it could it could potentially kill it as an institution. Uh, I'm
0: not so sure about that. I don't think he holds really, that big of a sway I think over he does. it he has
3: he has I think a, he does nah, right I disagree. Now. Yeah. Yeah, I
0: think I think there are plenty of people that will turn around and say, you know what? If they can find somebody Else, who can fill the spot and actually um, open up people's eyes to the grift that's been going on? Do I think it would hurt the um, the RNC? Absolutely. Do I think yeah. it'd be the destruction of the party? I don't think so. I think the party is yeah. way bigger than Trump. But as well, you know, so with the DA, it, I
3: think they're afraid that it could be the destruction of the party. I think that they're afraid. Why, it could just, why could really, stop the really- gravy train? right tristan why stop the gravy gravy train right they don't want to stop the gravy train it's it's been it's been good for them they raise money every time he opens his mouth uh and 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 they want to continue that so yeah they're they're going to do whatever they can to keep him happy but it's uh it is it, it is pretty pathetic to watch
0: yeah it's grotesque i want to switch gears for a second because you know that i'm very active with both the da and the ag's case here in new york provided them probably close to 15 um, different sessions of meeting and um, so on. Now, I want to talk about the Trump organization case. First off, is the testimony given to the grand jury from the other day from longtime Trump accountant Donald Bender, uh, who's with Mazur? This guy has been Trump's accountant for at, at least longer than I was there. That's decades and obviously, he's privy to all the shenanigans that goes on there between himself, between Alan Weiselberg, with Donald. I mean that's how it used to work that after everybody put together whatever information they needed to do, it would always be just Trump, Weiselberg and Donald Bender, you know, prior to, of course, the creation of his tax, um, his tax returns. Um, What do you think that Donald Bender knows and what kind of a deal do you think he got in order to talk?
3: So uh, under New York law, as you may know, uh, if you testify before a grand jury, you get immunity as to that testimony. It's the sort of king for a day or queen for a day immunity. Uh, Also. Uh, prosecutors, especially at at the sort of higher level, your more prestigious prosecutor's offices, are not in the business of putting witnesses before a grand jury without that witness being helpful. They're not just going to put someone before the grand jury if it's not somebody that's going to help the case. Uh, So my read on this, if you read between the lines, is that Donald Bender testifying before the grand jury the other day doesn't mean he's cooperating full stop, but it means he's being helpful, at least in part, And that the Manhattan DA's office uh, was was convinced enough that what he was saying was helpful, that they wanted to put him in front of the grand jury. And there is the implication that then he is now immune with regard to the testimony that he gave uh, before that grand jury. Uh, I do believe this is a very significant development. It did not get a whole lot of press attention. Um, It is just it's another brick in the wall, but it's a it's a pretty big brick bender's been there since at least the 90s um certainly for the time period that these prosecutions are gunning after runs from around anywhere from 2003 to 2006 to pretty much the present day uh, and certainly up to the point that trump became president uh so bender was was involved that entire time so he knows where all the bodies are buried uh so to speak uh, except the bodies here are numbers. Right. And, and the question is, like, when they came up with these widely uh, different di- uh, uh, valuations of properties, how was that decision made? Uh, and. You know, and and that bears on intent. So for the criminal case, that intent is critical because that's how you're actually going to find whether or not there was a crime there. You're going to need to be able to prove intent and you're going to have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a high hurdle. Uh, however they have a really good start to clear that hurdle by things like 40 wall street a 3300 percent disparity between the tax value that they stated and the value that they stated to lenders 33 times 3300 percent um that's no accident that's not donald bender you know missed a number that's not like somebody messed up the excel spreadsheet that was a deliberate act. There's no way that that wasn't intentional. Um, obviously, if you can get testimony that reinforces that fact that it's like, yes, I, I provided whatever the numbers were and we met and blah, blah, blah. If, if he was actually testifying as to what happened in meetings with, with Weisselberg and Trump, I mean, that's really the nightmare scenario for Trump and for Weisselberg and for the Trump Organization. So that's one. And then two, we can get to later, which is the civil case with the AG, which is a totally different situation in which the uh, in which the entire setup is even more favorable to the government.
0: So let me just correct you on one thing. What they're really looking at is not going back into the 1990s, uh, the early 2000s. They're looking based off the documentation that I provided to the House Oversight mm-hmm. Committee um, and because they have those documents as well. Mm-hmm. We're really talking about 2012, 13, 14, and 15. I mean, that's even at right. a time that he claimed that his home, his triplex, was 33,000 square feet with a value of $100 million and then bounced it up even higher higher than that. In fact, Mm -hmm. the apartment is 11,000 square feet. So how the hell Donald doesn't know the fact that the footprint's not 33,000 feet? Which, of course, he's not only the developer, he's the resident. So it's just- Honestly, it's it's so it's it's comical. I would love to be up there prosecuting because I would make it into a Saturday Night Live, you know, episode in a skit. You know, what do you mean? It's not thirty three thousand. It's not. But, you know, uh, Tristan, as we wind down the hour, I have just two um, additional questions for you. Sure. Trump's deposition before the New York attorney general is upcoming. Now, I've read some of his um, depositions and I can tell you they're they're almost comical. Because he thinks circular, he lies like a fucking rug, and it's like you could start in one direction and you end up with another direction, ultimately yeah. him telling you that the valuation of the building is what I say it is, right? That's mm-hmm. really not how you'd make a determination of a value. But there's talk that if he appears, that he's likely going to have to plead the fifth, which would be um, you know, the king of all irony. Right. I'm curious what you know about his testimony and what you think that the AG is looking to get out of this.
3: Yeah. So real quick, one thing with the civil case is that there you do not have to prove intent. You just have to be able to prove that there is a deception. You don't have to prove that it was an intentional deception. That's number one. Number two is that because it's a civil case, it is a preponderance of the evidence. Basically, like, is the evidence 51 percent versus 49 percent in favor of liability? Uh, as opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt, which is like, you know, pick a number, but it's like supposed to be like, you know, 99% certain that the, 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 the person had criminal liability. So the standard is way, way more favorable to the, to the, to the government in that case, in a civil prosecution there. Uh, so it's a, Trump already has, you know, a huge uphill battle here to, to be able to prevail in this civil case given the disparity in the values between what was claimed to tax assessors versus what was claimed to lenders so trump's deposition yes he is an absolute nightmare in depositions if i were if you're any any trump's lawyers it's just like you're literally just up at up at night with cold sweats you know fearing what's about to happen because he's going to go in there and he's just going to go around and around in circles and yeah they could actually get him to be like, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, b- basically what you said. Like, you know, the, the the property value is what I say it is. He could actually say that um, if he pleads the fifth. Here's the interesting thing: you can't plead the fifth in a civil case the same way you can in a criminal case. If
1: you plead uh-huh.
3: the fifth in a civil case, it does protect you from that testimony being used against you in the criminal case. That is true, uh, but the civil court is allowed to take the inference that whatever you were declining to answer, you are liable for. Uh, that the answer was bad, that you had something to hide. So if Trump pleads the fifth during that civil deposition, he is really, really going to put some nails in the coffin in terms of that civil case. Now the civil case will not result in him going to jail, civil, not criminal. However, I, and I've been beating the drum on this, it could result in a nine-figure uh, payment to the state of New York. And some of that could go to the lenders. Some of that will go to the state as penalties, and others will go to, to the state for back taxes that should have been paid in the first place. Uh, which it be- brings
0: me to my last question. Which brings yeah. me to my last question to you. Because you wrote early, and I agree with you 100%. I, too, have been beating the shit out of the drum on this. Yeah. You wrote early how the AG's case will likely destroy the Trump organization. Explain how, you know, and why this will happen and then what happens to Trump. And of course, again, we're talking about financially.
3: Right. So yeah, this is, yeah, I've I've talked about it being kind of a financial wrecking ball. Um, You know, I think it'll really damage it and, and reshape it, if not potentially, it has the potential to destroy it entirely. Here's why. Based on the other reports that we have from some really good journalism We know that he's got a lot of debts coming due. Uh, He's got lines and credit that are gonna get called uh, within the the next year and in the coming years where he's gonna owe hundreds of millions of dollars in loan repayments to a bunch of these big banks uh, in in Europe and elsewhere around the world uh, because Wall Street banks have been blackballing him for decades. Uh, So he already is gonna have a bit of a cash crunch. We know that his properties have been generating revenue so when you see reports saying Trump made $1 billion while he was president, yes, he, he made that in, re- in gross revenue net. He probably lost money because even the properties that he claimed were doing really, really well, like the Doral golf club in Florida or the new hotel in DC uh, that he's got there near the white house, those properties actually lost money during that time. Uh, I think that, If you then add a nine figure payday to the state of New York on top of that, he could find himself in a position where he actually has to sell some of the properties uh, in order to be able to pay for everything. Uh, And that could be ruinous for him. It could really, you could find him selling 40 Wall Street, selling the Trump International building here in New York, selling some of the golf clubs. Uh, because he's going to have to come up with money to pay off all of these things, that the creditors as well as the government.
0: Yeah, but I want to bring something, Ed, I want to add something to that comment. It's not just New York that he's going to owe. It's going to also be the federal government, uh, IRS yes. and so the, on, the which taxes. is definitely going to be an additional nine yes. figures on there. And then here's even a bigger problem. What What ultimately happens is when you sell the property, let's talk about 40 Wall Street. If he sells 40 Wall Street, he has a negative basis in that property. So if he gets $300 million to it, a buck 50 of that is going straight off the bat to Uncle Sam right. as a that's capital right. gain. That's right. So yes. that's the big that's the big issue here.
3: Yep. Yep, it sets a bunch of dominoes in motion and we don't know where it'll end. It could end in another bankruptcy. So we'll see. Yeah.
0: Well, Tristan, let me turn around and say thank you for joining me again on Maya Culpa. Uh, it's always a great conversation. It's always an insightful conversation. Uh, of course, I end up getting a little bit more, you know, heated up than everybody else, all my guests. I, you know, one day I should go on somebody else's show where I'm not getting heated up. But I want to thank you and I want to wish you a very happy new year to you and your family as well. So please stay safe. And um, I hope to see you back here on Maya Culpa soon. And now for today's mea culpa. In thinking about Merrick Garland's address before the January 6th anniversary, I am worried that the DOJ will never prosecute Donald Trump. I did not hear any sense of urgency, despite the fact that Garland stated that the attack by design interfered with a fundamental element of American democracy, the peaceful transfer of power from one administration to the next. Well, why did the attack happen? Simple, Trump's nonstop fucking lies from election day in November of 2020 on, including his summoning supporters to Washington on January 6th for a wild time and his urging them on that tragic morning to stop the steal. The January 6th attack simply wouldn't have happened if Trump hadn't engaged in that conduct, but had instead accepted the fact that he lost the fucking election. Every day that we don't pursue action against the true plotters of this day is another moment where they're able to obscure and muddle the truth of what actually happened. The most relentless of these voices is chief MAGA propagandist Tucker Carlson, who on the eve of January 6th told his millions of viewers that January 6th barely rates as a footnote and really not a lot happened that day if you think about it. He called the event just a riot, maybe just barely. This memory-holing of January 6th allows the GOP to claim that they are being unfairly maligned for actions beyond their control. Congressional Republicans almost uniformly avoided participating in events at the Capitol on Thursday commemorating the January 6th attack. They were nowhere to be found on the House or the Senate floor. That left representatives Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, the fucking lunatic fringe of the GOP, as the headliners of their party's only event on Capitol Hill on Thursday, commemorating the anniversary of the riot. And this, my friend, speaks volumes. They once again elevated, unproven conspiracy theories about the origin of the assault that sought to deflect blame from Trump, such as one suggesting that federal agents stoked the violence against Congress. And here is where the rubber meets the road. Should the GOP retake the majority later this year, green gates and the lunatic fringe of the GOP who protect Trump at all costs will be ushered into power and rewarded with all manner of high-ranking posts in a new GOP Congress. This fucking frightens me beyond the pale, and it should frighten you too. Let's hope we see justice before the clock runs out. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.